Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And that haunting alien world's landscape theme means this must be a Doctor Who show episode of Alternate Galaxies. Yay! It's been a while since we've done one of these, Dave. It's been a while since we've done one. These are our irregular look at shows and movies that are probably things that Doctor Who fans watch but are not Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we've sort of talked about doing this episode a bit over the last few weeks, and a lot of Doctor Who fans have gone, oh my god, that show, yes, yes, yes. So I think we're on the money with this one. Look, I think we are. So in this episode, we are going to be talking about the UK TV show Ultraviolet, mm-hmm. which ran for one season of six episodes on Channel 4. Mm-hmm. Not a BBC production, Channel 4 back in 1998. And as you say, Rob, this is one of those shows that I think... Doctor Who fans who were of our sort of vintage and were young kids for the end of the classic season and then spent the 90s kind of looking around for other sci-fi mm. did latch on to and I think a lot of people have fond memories. So we're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is I'm a big fan and I wanted to talk about it, but when I raised it as a possible subject with you, Rob, you had a confession. I I did, just after you've just bigged up all Doctor Who fans are saying they're, they're into it. This is one that completely passed me by at the time. I don't know how. I love shows of this nature. I loved Buffy. I watched The X-Files religiously even after it turned a bit weird and people gave up on it. Other shows, yes, great. This one, shushum, just passed me by. I think maybe it was the length. It's so short and it was never followed up year on year with more. It sort of came and went and I never saw it. That's exactly right. So that, I think, gave us a bit of a hook into the episode, which is I'm going to talk about going back and re-watching it. You're going to talk about watching it for the first time. So we're going to be able to compare those reactions. Mm. Now, listeners, I'll just let you know again the format. We're going to have a bit of a chat about what this show is and what it's about and, and all that sort of thing before we lower the spoiler curtain. So, so if you're a little bit curious, you can listen for a little bit. We'll then let you know when we're going into hardcore spoilers. So if you do listen to the first five, 10 minutes and you think, I want to check that out, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a point. This is the time to go check it out. Mm-hmm. I encourage you to pause at the spoiler curtain, watch it unspoilt, and then come back and see if you agree with us. Because we will be talking some pretty fundamental spoilers, I suspect. Absolutely, because this is just a one-off podcast. It's not like we're doing this week after week after week and you'll fall behind if you have to go out and watch the thing first. <laughs> this this single podcast episode will be waiting for you when you've seen it and when you come back. Yep, so the spoiler curtain is coming, but a bit of background. This does have a Doctor Who link. It was written and directed by Joe Ahern, who, of course, was the BAFTA-nominated director of five episodes of Doctor Who in 2005, and dare I say, five very good episodes. Yeah, I was going to say the good ones. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, the good ones. He's done a few things with Christopher Eccleston over the years, but I was a little bit blown away to realise there was only a seven-year gap between Ultraviolet and Doctor Who coming back. They feel like different parts of my lifetime. Yeah, and they, not to try and preempt things, they, they look like different parts of uh everyone's lifetime in general look that's very true as well i can certainly remember this going out on the abc back in 1998 uh it was definitely promoted quite heavily they were really going quite hard on getting us to watch this and i really enjoyed it and when i saw it some years later in a dvd shop on dvd i did snatch it up so i've seen it a few times now rob i'm going to throw to you for the next bit mm-hmm. how would you describe this show spoiler free to someone who's never seen it. Oh, gosh. 
I think the best way I could describe it is to compare it to something maybe like the X-Files in terms of a team of people are investigating some supernatural goings on, but only in a very specific direction. It's not like Monster of the Week. It's only one kind of thing that they're investigating and they have powers to um, to apprehend or even kill these uh, these folks. Um, I'm trying to be very vague, Dave, and it's not working for me. <laughs> uh, yes, look, I think... I think we can say before the spoiler curtain what the monster is, can't we? Yeah, surely people know by now. Yeah, so look, they're referred to as Code V or leeches in the show. They are, of course, implied to be vampires. Mm. And there were a lot of vampire things in the world around about 1998. Buffy, as you mentioned, was certainly a big one. But this is vampires, to use a Doctor Who reference... As you'd imagine, somebody like Christopher H. Bidmead to do it. Mm, very scientific. It's very scientific. It's got it's got the magical premise at its heart and that fantastical premise at its heart. But it very much is, okay, if we said that vampires were real and we dropped them into Britain in 1998, what does that look like? How do they work? How do we react to them? How does the government react to them? What what goes on? How, how do things that were mythical parts of Bram Stoker's Dracula translate into the 1990s? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going by just saying this is up there as a particular favourite television series for me. It, it's not big enough that it makes sort of the top fives or the top tens. But it is one that I regard in very high esteem because it is very thoughtful. Mm. It is very well directed and it is it is very spooky, in my yeah. view anyway. Yeah. Uh, so look, it's one I've watched a number of times over the years and every time I come back to, I do take more away from it. And um, spoiler alert, I'm going to say the same thing uh, about this rewatch, which is the first time for quite a few years. Before we drop the spoiler curtain, Rob, first time you've seen it, your headline reaction. My absolute first genuine thought after the first episode was, well, this isn't very hand-holding. And what I mean by that is I watched that first episode, even knowing a little of what would happen, even knowing that it was about people, you know, chasing vampires. And I, I still wasn't piecing everything together. People would say stuff. Or characters would appear, and I'd think, what does that mean? Who is this? What's going on? And you just have to ride it out and put it together yourself in most cases. Just one example, and I am being non-spoilery here, would be that young vampire in the first episode with the goatee. He looks very distinctive. This guy's been tracking him and telling the police about him. Aha! I thought, this must be a main character. We'll be chasing him through this whole series. No, we're not. <laughs> My wife even commented on this at the end of the first episode, albeit by saying she actually liked that it wasn't hand-holding. And maybe given today's exposition-heavy style of TV, or maybe I'm just used to Chris Chibnall, Doctor Who, I don't know, um, <laughs> we're, we're not told all the storyline, but, but are told things. They tell us things that we can already see on screen in modern-day television. It's quite strange. This does stand out as a TV show where you have to watch and pay attention, not in a crazy way, but, but way more than you do with modern TV. And that's my initial thought on what the series was like to watch. 
I also don't think it's helped a lot by the first episode being a bit ropey, writing-wise. I'll say that before the spoiler curtain goes down. But story-wise, across the whole season, it really did draw me in. I quite liked it, especially by episode three, where the series has settled in. I'll say that much ahead of the spoiler curtain, Dave. Look, I think that's very fair and a very interesting sort of reaction. You are right about the hand-holding. To give a, a famous example about the show, never once in the six hours do they mention the word vampire. Yeah, it's always Code 5 or whatever. Code 5 or leeches or, or some sort of euphemism. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And, and again, just to give another little non-spoiler example that I think sums up the way that the plot does fold and can come back to itself over a number of episodes, but also the approach that they take to vampires in this. In the first episode, you see what you think is tear gas being used against some sort of hostile person. Mm. And and one of the characters comments at the time, oh, they, they used tear gas, but it must have been a bit out of date because it wasn't particularly potent. It just smelled a bit odd. And then a couple of episodes later, there's just a casual mention that one of the scientists has worked out what the particular chemical in garlic is mm-hmm. that, that vampires are... Uh, react to and they've been able to use that to create basically garlic gas yeah. which is a really interesting little thing and and again the first time you watch it you might not link those two things but when you see it more and more you go oh that was a that was how that happened and yes mm-hmm. it's very clever yeah really good stuff well look we've really danced around spoilers a bit so <laughs> spoiler curtain come on down now as we get on with the discussion a little bit more let's talk about the cast of Ultraviolet, particularly the big four main cast members, because looking at it now, you go, wow, what a cast. <laughs> yeah. But as, as we discuss it, it's, it's interesting. It caught a number of them just as they were coming over the peak of their careers and really starting to break out. Um, and look, the main lead character is Jack Davenport. Rob, you want to talk a bit about him for a second? Yeah, this is the character I've probably got the most to say about, and that's probably appropriate given he's the lead in this ensemble, I would say. Yes. And I don't know if this is going to be heresy and going against popular opinion, Dave, because I've deliberately not gone out and read, well, I don't even know if these things exist, but are there wikis based on Ultraviolet? Are there websites based on I don't know. I've not gone and sorted out. So <laughs> I could be saying something that everyone will roll their eyes and go, oh, duh, we all thought that 20 years ago. <laughs> or, or people might say, what on earth are you talking about? And I honestly don't know what it's going to be. Let the cards fall where they may, Dave. I'm going to say Jack Davenport as Michael Colefield is a bit of a charisma-free zone. Which is funny because in the show he's got this journo who's into him and he thinks he can bag this other chick called Kirsty and it's like he's irresistible to women and I sit there thinking through the whole six episodes, um, how? <laughs> but, but let's park that for the moment. He's a charisma-free zone and I don't think he has any sort of arc. The series, in my first viewing of it, sees him go from this everyday detective to working in a vampire kill team Yet he's virtually the same in episode six as in episode one. He's still not quite part of the team. He still operates by his own code. That's how he came into the team. That's how the series ends. I don't know if he would have evolved more if there were more series. And the problem with this is the bloke's the protagonist of the whole series. So if he's not going through some sort of arc, he's not working right to my mind and the series isn't firing as well as it could. 
And look, if that's by design, if Joe Ahern was telling Jack Davenport to play it like this, then fine. You know, that's shades of George Lucas telling Hayden Christensen to play Anakin Skywalker as some sort of semi-lobotomized James Dean. You know, it's not Hayden's fault. Blame George. But regardless, I don't think this character is played in quite the right way I would have liked to have seen him played. And half the time, I felt quite indifferent to him. That's interesting because I take it a completely different way. Oh, really? I I see him as the audience identification figure and one who spends the series struggling with the morality of what a vampire kill squad has to do. Mm. And it's about him resolving that in the way that you perhaps don't expect. And I, I, I do agree that he's not charismatic in the way that Jack Davenport in the talented Mr. Ripley would be where he plays Matt Damon's boyfriend or in Coupling, which is probably his biggest, most famous breakout role. Mm -hmm. This is him as somebody who is very, very unhappy for most of the series. And I think that's what he's going for. But it's interesting that, you know, it comes across very differently to both of us. And we should also mention Jack Davenport's other probably big starring roles is in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies mm-hmm, that's true yeah look a- again you mentioned how he's the audience identification figure absolutely he is but when he seems so bored and almost like he doesn't want to be there what's that sort of saying to the audience that that's my takeaway yeah i i see him as being angry and, right and and that's my takeaway okay so there you go i have a fun fact i've actually got a fun fact about all four of our leads dave oh please Jack Davenport, you may know this, is married to Missy from Doctor Who, Michelle Gomez. I didn't know that. Did you not? Yeah, yeah. they are. They're married, yeah. Interesting. Uh, look, so the next... <laughs> the, the next I, I don't know what to say about that. I, I hope they're very happy. <laughs> Me too. The, the next character we'll talk about is the one who probably really grabbed my attention when mm-hmm. I first saw the adverts for this before it aired in, in, in 1998, and that is Susanna Harker as Dr. Angela March. Now, Susanna Harker had been in a couple of very big series prior to this, and she's probably the one who was most well-known, certainly by British audiences at the time, because she'd been Maddie Starr on the female lead in House of Cards, and right. she'd been Jane Bennett in the big, big worldwide phenomenon BBC adaption of Pride and Prejudice in 1995. So she was quite a well-known actress at this time. But she plays Dr. Angela March, who is, I, I guess you could say, the Lee Shaw of the team. Yes, yes. She she is a scientist and she's the one who has to give all the techno babble answers. She's the one that created the garlic gas to use against vampires. She's the one that does all the research into what the vampires are up to with trying to replicate blood or the the episode where the vampires are trying to insert vampire DNA into human sperm so they can procreate she's the one that gets all the scientific sort of dialogue in there but we also discover as the series goes on that her husband who initially we just think is dead but then we really discover was turned into a vampire and then executed by the squad that sort of goes on to play a role as well and i think that she does her job very very well in terms of getting the technobabble out This time around, I probably took the least from her character compared to the others. 
Okay. I took it to be she lost her husband and a child, and that's why she's very protective of the one child she has. Yes, that's true. Yes, that is. Yeah. All right. I'll kick off with a fun fact before I go into my thoughts on uh, Susanna Harker, Dave. And that's that Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, named the character Jonathan Harker after a real-life relative of Susanna Harker. That is very cool. Isn't that a crazy vampire connection? Wow. I like it's, that. It's all true. Absolutely true. Anyway, you say Liz Shaw, and I guess that's a good one to, to bring up because we are a Doctor Who podcast. My wife kept calling her the Scully one. Yeah, right. Uh, throughout it. And I don't think that's a profound stretch either. I mean, X-Files would have been in its imperial phase probably three years prior to this, I would say. Prior to it being made, at least. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Yeah, and as the woman of science working in the supernatural sort of area... That was well established with Scully. And of course there are layers here. She hates the vampires, yet she still keeps this open mind, which comes up when it seems that they might want peace. Like, oh, we're making this blood substitute so we can have peace, you know? And and she's kind of into that idea, even though she hates them. Yes, she's messed up by losing her husband and the kid. And I think it's the underpinning of why she doesn't just jump Idris Elba, who's clearly into her. I think she's keeping a lot inside and just can't go there. She can't have a deep relationship with another human being, perhaps, because of the way she's lost the husband. Yeah, she is very, very ruthless. Mm. And one thing that I do think that Susanna Harkin does a very good job at is giving us this sense that she does have some moral doubts about their work, but still being utterly ruthless. She's the one that takes the woman they suspect has been impregnated by the vampires and is basically willing to force her to have a termination. Now, 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 now the episode has some very interesting moral discussions about whether you can call it a termination if it's an undead child. It's already dead. How could it be a termination? But, mm. you know, that's not how the mother sees it. She's the one that pulls the trigger in the very last episode when it looks like a couple of others won't. So she's very, very ruthless, but... Yeah, a really interesting character. Uh, You mentioned Idris Elba there, Rob. Do you want to carry on down that path? I did. I did indeed. I mean, what can I say? He's the the ex-military man who's cool, calm and collected, almost unnaturally at times, which almost sort of hurt the performance for me. He was just a bit too robotic perhaps i think he's at his best when he is that tough cool calm and collected guy but he's also making a one-liner which he gets to do from time to time it was like oh that was great when they let him do a a one-liner here and there it's it's great it shows the character is self-aware despite the exterior that he's mostly showing and towards the the end of the series where he does crack a bit and we get to see a bit more inside of him he does feel more real than that robotic vibe he gives at times. So I came to really like Idris Elba's character as the series went on. And my fun fact for Idris is that Oscar Grouchos, who follows us on Twitter, Dave, I think you saw this, yes, re- replied to a recent tweet of ours about Ultraviolet to say, I asked Idris about this recently. Well overdue for that second season, I said. He agreed. <laughs> So I'm not sure whether this took place at a convention or what Oscar didn't really say, but it's nice to hear that fans are still mentioning this to Idris and that he's replying to them. Yes, and it's interesting because when I first saw the series, Idris Elba was the one member of the cast that I had no knowledge about whatsoever. I'd never seen him in anything. I I didn't really engage with him at the time, whereas now you look at this and go, bloody Idris Elba's in this. 
Yeah, well, he is very young. I mean, when he first comes on, he's in that suit. He's looking schmick. Folks, this is when he needed to play James Bond. I mean, everyone's obsessed still with him playing James Bond, even though he's too old now. No, this is when he should have been Bond, when he was looking like this. Oh, my God, when he walks on screen, it's like, whew. Yeah. Look at this guy. It's it's definitely a presence. And watching it back, he was the one that I really appreciated a lot more now as an adult, just how much he's doing with his character. And, and just, those, as you said, those really subtle little asides. Plus, he also gets probably the best scene in the series, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, and look, I did mention that he's clearly into Angela, and he doesn't do that through much at all. I mean, I think the only time they, they really touch is when he kisses her on the forehead one night after he's gone there for a coffee. But it's through all the other looks and the way he talks to her that you know, oh, this guy is into her. Yes. And, and look, it's probably worth just also noting as well that his backstory is that he was in the army and his squad was wiped out by vampires and had the sun not come up, he would have been as well. And right. and, and, and he says that it's sort of his, his credo that they won't get another drop from him. Yeah. And, and that does make him very, very determined. Speaking of determined, we have our last main character, the leader of the group, Piers Harmon, played by Australia's own Philip Quast. Yes. <laughs> now, I will just mention a little bit of background about Philip because he is a very big deal in certain circles, particularly in Australia at the time. Now, I first knew him as Philip from Play School, where he turned up from 1981 to 1996. This was going to be my fun fact today. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> well, on, there go you go. Um, look, he also was in a couple of sort of very big Australian series a little bit earlier in the 90s. Brides of Christ, which was a huge, big budget Australian drama in yeah. the early 90s. Uh, the Damnation, Also of, about the Catholic Church. Also about the Catholic Church. The Damnation yeah. of Harvey McHugh, which again was another of those sort of big prestige sort of... The chattering classes talked a lot about it when it, when it was out in Australia. Mm. But also a very successful stage performer. He was Javert in the original Australian production of Les Miserables. He then went over and played Javert in the UK. And when they do those big reunion dream casts of Les Miserables, he's invariably who they get back to play Javert. Mm-hmm. Um, he won a Laurence Olivier Award for Sunday in the Park with George. And I did see him on stage uh, back in 2010 when he played George Banks in Mary Poppins on stage. Yeah, he's had quite the career. And yet he does fly under the radar for folks overseas. It's not like Philip Quast is in the newspaper every week or two. I don't think I've seen him in the newspaper for 20 years. No, no, absolutely. But a very big name, particularly out here at the time. And look, he plays the leader of the group who is a priest, Mm. which leads to some fascinating discussions about morality and spirituality. And he, he comes from the point of view of the vampires being against God. And therefore he's sort of dogmatically determined to, to get them. And so his motivations are sometimes very different to the more practical motivations of somebody like Idris Elba's character, who just sees them as baddies that need to be taken out. Mm-hmm. It's introduced during the course of the series that he has been diagnosed with serious but treatable leukemia. Yeah, the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin's yeah. lymphoma. And, and so suddenly a man whose job it is to lead the attack on immortal undead vampires is faced by his mortality. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, one of the most interesting character arcs of the series. Yeah, I'd say about Pierce, he's the anchor of the team. And I feel he's the anchor of the series too. Yeah. You know, just quietly in the background in some moments. Other times he gets a bit more of a starring role. I mean, he's a steady hand. He's got some good quips. I noticed that. And he's the one who seems less emotionally messed up than the others, even though we know he's holding something in, whether it's the cancer, whether it's just all the stuff he's probably seen over the years of doing this job. We, we get the sense he's probably not quite right, but he's holding it together, I think, better than the others. Probably only Vaughn comes close to, to holding it in like uh, Pierce is. And I, I think that makes for a very good stoic sort of character. And as I mentioned, the fun fact was going to be that he did play school. I, I wonder if our overseas listeners can imagine Pierce Harmon singing children's songs and <laughs> crawling around on the floor with, you know, blocks and things. <laughs> yes, yeah, so so very true. You're, you're right. He does have that stoicism and that wit, and that, that does lead to some lines that are both ruthless and hilarious. Uh, I think of the one where he says well, we won't learn anything until we do a proper autopsy. And when Jack Davenport sort of does the what, he said, I believe that's the correct term for the dissection of dead tissue. Yes. <laughs> no, there, are, there are really good lines like that. So, look, speaking of dead tissue, let's get on to a bit more about the series, Code V, Vampires. Now, Rob, I know you're a big fan of a lot of vampire shows and movies and, and literature. What did you think of the way they were portrayed here? Gosh, there's there's the way they're referred to, there's the way they're portrayed. You're asking specifically about portrayed. I guess I'll well, stick on that. I'll however stick on however that. you want to talk about it. Well, I'll stick on that path because I think it's very interesting that they're portrayed quite sympathetically. You know, on, on Buffy from time to time, we'd have the good vampire like um, Angel. Um, but he was a good vampire because he had to be. You know, he was cursed to be. Whereas here, all the vampires we sort of have much to do with all come across as quite reasonable people. Many times it's mentioned in the series by multiple vampires that no one becomes a vampire against their will. You know, they don't just go around turning people all willy-nilly. You actually have to want to be one. And, and I mean, it could be part of the whole vampire seduction thing. Vampires can be very seductive with the way they talk. But I think they're telling the truth in this case. It's interesting because, as you say, the series doesn't hold your hand in this. So you do get the vampires giving their side of the story. And as you say, making comments like, nobody crosses over who doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. But you also get the priest giving the retort to that is, they can do a lot of things to make you want to. Right, yes. Fair. And so so that, that, that genuine moral dubiousness, I think you're right, is very much there. Yeah, but they, they never come across as like monsters of jumping out of the shadows like, ah, you know. In fact, the few times they do surprise someone out of the shadows, it's not really much of an attack. I'm thinking of the, the journalist guy yeah, who is out out and about one night and he just sort of turns around and is like, oh, you know, and we don't even see who he's talking to, but we know that a vampire's come up and probably he's about to be turned into one, perhaps. It's... Interesting that you bring that character up because they are shown to be morally ambiguous for a lot of the series. They are very manipulative mm-hmm. and they are very uh, ruthless in their own way, which which is contrasted with the ruthlessness of the humans who are attacking them. Like the, ne- neither side is particularly morally virtuous here. No, 
But I did feel by the end of the series in that last episode, there are a few moments that are meant to just nudge you against them. We do see for the first time a vampire actually feeding on someone. And that is directed in a very, very creepy way, as if to show, no, these guys are monsters. And the reaction of Jack when he suddenly comes back and Michael's tried to reunite him with his fiancée and he just says, get a life, and leaves her completely wickedly, I think is just meant to show that they have got a different morality. But it's it's not beaten over the head. They're not, they're not into gore and violence. And, and that was my big takeaway from the series. It really looks at how vampires would be if they existed in the real world. Now, some of it's very clever in that they take the idea of vampires can't be captured by a mirror you can't see their image in a mirror and says well that that could apply to all technology you can't capture their image so they can't be photographed they can't be seen on a security camera they mm-hmm. can't be seen through a gun sight um they can't talk down the telephone so how, how do they communicate with each other and they have technological solutions to some of those problems the way that they drive around during the day in Wind, you know, tinted tinted cars, which is shown yeah, to be blacked very blacked out windows, yeah, which is shown to be a um not entirely safe way to drive around, and that that has consequences. Um, you know, I find <laughs> if you run over motorcyclists, it does. yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, I did did find that interesting, and and again, the series, as you say, does trick us a little bit because we start to see some of their research, and their research is about well, can we procreate without turning a human? Can we? develop synthetic blood so we don't need to feast on humans and, and as you said um angela's particularly like well hang on maybe they want to coexist and we don't have to have a war and then you realize that their plan is that when they are able to wipe out humanity they don't need us anymore because they've got synthetic blood and they can reproduce without us so they don't want to live with us they want to eradicate us yeah and i found that very interesting that that was kind of the big reveal of the whole thing like i could have imagined this being spread out amongst 12 18 episodes before we got to that moment it's almost like Dave, because i don't know what happened with this show i don't know whether they got to the end of the series and channel 4 said no we're not commissioning more of that rubbish or joe ahern said oh i don't want to make any more of this or maybe some of the actors didn't want to come back i don't know what had caused it to not get a second series But I wonder if it was known that they weren't going to get a second series. That's why they slipped in the big reveal that, oh, yeah, we're going to have dust clouds in the sky blocking the sun and then for a year the vampires will take over sort of thing. Because it seems a hell of a big reveal. It's like the big reveal, the the whole plot is revealed to us within the first six episodes. And I don't know why you would do that, to be honest. Yeah, I think that Ahern's intention was that it always could be self-contained if it had to be. And he had sort of ideas of where he would take a second season if he got the second season. And, and I don't think it was a very sort of brutal, no, nah, that was a failure, we're not doing it. It was kind of like, look, we'll think about doing it. And then the, the, the stars just never quite aligned. There wasn't quite enough enthusiasm. There wasn't quite the budget at the right time that Joe Hearn was free and the cast was free and, and all that sort of thing. So it just never quite worked out that way. And once it hadn't happened for a year or two, it sort of got forgotten. Right. Um, because it... it, it it's, it's worth saying, I don't think it ever got repeated out here. And I don't think it got repeated in the UK until you sort of got those satellite channels a bit later that would throw it on. Well, that that also plays into what I was saying earlier when I said, you know, it's only six episodes that kind of passed me by without extra series or without repeats even in this country. No wonder I never saw it. Yeah, absolutely. Six weeks and gone. Yeah, wow. 
the organisation that we follow for the course of the six episodes, I think is very interesting because a lot of detail isn't filled in. We're never given a name for it. We're given a, a long kind of name for it, which I thought might have been a joke. Oh, the, uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. Yes. Yeah, well, that, that's a real thing. Is it really? Oh, there you go. That, that's a real thing. Um, how religious I am. Yes, no, um, it, 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 is, it, is, it is a part of the Catholic Church. It has sort of evolved from the Inquisition. And Joseph Ratzinger, before he became Pope Benedict, was head of it. Oh, is that right? The emperor? Yes, that's right. <laughs> right. Um, so that, 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 is, that is a real thing. And, and that, that leads me very nicely to the fact that it's, it's implied that it's got Vatican money. It's implied that the government has sanctioned this, that they have the resources. They've certainly got a lot of money, whatever it is they're doing. Mm. Um, but we're never given a sort of, you know, this is section 31 or, or whatever. This is, it's not sort of done that way. Nobody has titles. There aren't lots of signs and like offices. It's it's all very very opaque. Yeah, they're, they're like Torchwood, Dave. They're outside the government, beyond the police. Sometimes. <laughs> well, sometimes because the police do defer to them and seem to know who they are. Yes, and and there are times when they can just go in and pose as policemen with with proper IDs and 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 all the rest of that. And and yeah, you know, police superintendents are told, look, I've just been told, give these guys what they want and stay clear. Yeah. So yeah, I just. I, I just like that way that it's done. And I, I like the way it's implied at a couple of points that their, their secret base is under a church, mm-hmm. which means that vampires can't get to it. Yeah, very cool. It is very cool. I'm, I'm surprised Buffy never thought of that. That's a really good point. Just while we talk about their base, it does, of course, have that room where they store the ashes of all these vampires because vampires can be resurrected from their ashes. That room, Dave, I think betrays the budget of the show. It looks kind of cool, but when you look at it really closely, it was like, that's a really little cheap set, isn't it, really? Yeah, so that actually brings me to the next point I was going to raise very well, which is, oh, really? which, which, which is the, the, the 1990s setting of this. Watching it back for this podcast, I thought a couple of things. I, I, I thought that, look, it doesn't scream 90s to me in the way that I thought it might. Yeah, yes, there's definitely some haircuts and some costumes that you go oh yeah i remember that when i was wearing that in 1998 you know that's Mm -hmm. that's sort of very familiar but it doesn't look as big budget as a tv show now would but there was no point where i sat there and thought this looks impossibly cheap in the way that you would when you look at some television from the 90s i think it's it's very well done and very cleverly done as you say that prison set that they have doesn't look expensive, but it works. And the ultraviolet lighting, I think, makes it work. There's a lot of things that happen off screen. So a lot of the vampire deaths, they have enough in them to, to show off the effect, but a lot of them haven't happened just off screen. A lot of the vampire violence happens just off screen. You know, the vampire will leap towards something, you'll cut away your reaction, you'll hear a scream, you'll cut back. Yeah. Um, so so they're, they're, Joe Hearn is very clearly using his budget very cleverly i think this was filmed a lot on location too it, it absolutely was and, and, and a lot of night shooting as well which is really really effective and you can do very cheap filming you know you have some lights a camera and jack davenport walking down a street at night and yeah. you can get very eerie shots very effectively but but yeah it didn't scream cheap 90s show to me the way i had worried that it might, but I was coming to it, I guess, with a fan's eyes. How did you feel? Yeah, Dave, look, when when I say that room with the vampire's ashes in it looks a bit cheap, 
it's the lack of flash and pizzazz in it that makes it come across that way to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, it does. It, it's it's not showy in the way that no. had it been made 10 years later and even five years later, it, it would be. I mean, I mean, it does remind me of some of the cheaper episodes from the Equestrian era where you do look at it now and you go, ooh, that, that has a smaller budget than we maybe thought at the time. Oh, especially walls. Walls during the Eccleston era that have been painted to look like metal. And you know it's just chipboard. <laughs> you can see it so clearly, especially in high-definition versions of uh, the show. Yeah, so, yeah, look, you, you don't sit there now and go, wow, these special effects could be done today. Of course you don't. But but I do think it, it held up a lot better than, than I thought. Mm, definitely. Having spoken through some of the general stuff, any points you want to start pointing us to, Rob? Uh, there, there are a couple of characters who aren't in the ensemble, but I think they're reasonably important. You've got Kirsty, played by Colette Brown, who who was a bit of a pain in the ass throughout the whole <laughs> throughout the whole show, uh, as she tries to you know keep investigating uh, herself what's going on, which puts her in touch with the the journalist who becomes a vampire and all that sort of stuff. But I think the payoff is in the final episode, which you've already mentioned, that that when Jack comes back her fiance who 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 left her at the altar to become a vampire yeah he really doesn't care about her even though she's absolutely cared about him this whole time you know wondering what's happened to him has he been killed what's going on how did it happen and all of that so she's she's a, a i'll say a good character even though she's a pain in the ass i'll say she's a good character and also francis uh, played by fiona dolman she came across as probably the most sensible character in the whole show to me. And as an example of how things aren't really explained, when we first meet her, there's some reference to Michael being protective of her. I thought, oh, well, this is Michael's sister. And then it sort of came clearer to me over episodes ahead that, oh, no, it's someone he's had a relationship with and now they don't have a relationship, but they're still very, very close. So I found Frances to be an interesting character too. And at first I didn't even know because she could get all this information. I thought, does she work for the government? Who does she work for? She's just an investigative journalist as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and she's very effective. I think you're right. She's a very sensible character. And she's also the one that finally shows up Michael's morality when she won't cross a line that he wants her to cross. Yes, yes. He does keep going back for favours a lot. Look, he absolutely does. And I think that, you know, there's some very clever and judicious writing there where it's implied that Michael and Francis and Jack were all sort of part of the one friendship circle and Jack getting engaged to this other woman kind of broke the circle up in a, in a way that sometimes it does because not everyone in the circle likes his choice of fiance, And so there's a yep. bit of like, well, we don't really hang out anymore, but oh, you're still friends. And I, I just thought that was quite cleverly done and quite sparingly done in terms of the way that it was written. Yeah, what's that old song? You know, the wedding bells are breaking Break up. up this old, old game of mine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one that Paul McCartney likes to quote. Oh, that's he does indeed. Yes. I think that's in, um, in Anthology. In Anthology, that's right. There yes. we go. Yeah, no, there, there is that, that sort of vibe to it. One of the things that I think really is important about this series is the adult nature of it. And I'm not just talking about they take vampires really seriously and they have big guns and all the rest of it, but there are a number of concepts and themes that... I can remember watching when I was 18, and some of them I understood and found very disturbing. Others I didn't really quite understand. Mm. And now that I watch it as an adult, you sort of go, wow, they, they went into some quite unpleasant territories there. So you've got, for example, the way that they vampires frame 
a priest. Um, and then the goodies, oh, yes. the goodies yeah. say, well, actually, we need to cover up the vampires. They've already planted this. He was a pedophile backstory. So let's just run with that, um, which is a very nasty thing. Uh, but the way that there is an actual pedophile in that episode and for the vampires to get him on side, they give him a vampire who looks like a child. Yes. You know, that's, yeah. that's really disturbing stuff. You've got another episode where, as I say, it, it deals with abortion and terminations and and those sort of concepts. These are not nice and pleasant things. And I think particularly in the 90s, they were a bit taboo on, on television. So it's interesting that they use the cover of a fantasy to go there. But even some of the sort of the less uncomfortable narratives like the episode where the vampires are manipulating the stock market and you discover that they think it's the banker's son that's the vampire but you realize the guy's been a vampire so long it's now his son who has actually mm-hmm. aged past him yeah yeah he hasn't turned him yeah he hasn't turned him he's, he's, it's, he's just sort of lay past him so there are all these i think really interesting implications there and and sometimes sort of betrayed by the fact uh, the episode titles because all the episodes are named after latin phrases and that episode for example is called in nomine patris which is in the name of the father and mm-hmm. the whole twist is that it's not the son it's the father yeah look I, I agree on all of what you've just said and and that episode with the priest who's set up to be the pedophile even the the knife attack well, I think it's a Stanley knife, if I recall. It is, yes. Uh, at the start. That's brutal. There's blood going everywhere. He's pushing up against the glass. It's like, wow, this, especially for the era, this is really pushing the boat out. Yeah, and, and then it leads into that scene where they're investigating the classmates and they open the shutters a bit and the, the classmates are all a little bit, oh, don't like that son. And then, then she puts a Bible in front of one student and says, can you just open that? Yeah. And, and it takes... It takes a long time. It's 30, 40, 50 seconds of, of watching this kid suffer because he, he can't bring himself to open a Bible. Mm. And, and, and I think that that's one thing that does mark this down as being a slightly older piece of television. I, I can't imagine some of these scenes playing out quite so slowly in modern television that's, that's often a lot more sort of set to that sort of 42, 45 minute range. Yeah, yeah, I would be edited down for sure these days. Much punchier. Um, So look, most of the other points I had to talk about, we've kind of teased out in our discussion, or I'm saving them for our wrap-up questions. (laughs) So let's get into those. Uh, Rob, I'll throw the first one at you. What is the thing that surprised you most watching it for the first time? This is something I've been biting my tongue on for the last five, ten minutes, Dave. Yes. Because... One thing that surprised me is how old 1998 TV can look. (laughs) This is almost the year 2000, and it looks old and grainy and a bit clapped out. And hey, in some ways, that suits the subject matter. So it kind of works in its favour. But you know it's not deliberate, because even when it's the middle of the day or they're in a brightly lit office, everything still looks slightly crappy. And I think it's just the look of the production in general, maybe the cameras they were using or something. It reminded me very much of the first season of Buffy and the Buffy pilot in particular. The Buffy pilot looks even more old and dated than the rest of the first season of Buffy. It reminded me of that kind of look. It, It definitely doesn't look like, you know, you put on the 2005 series of Doctor Who 
And although we mentioned earlier that that's starting to show its age in some ways, that looks bright and shiny and 10 times better than this in terms of its look. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that also comes back to the point I made right at the start that it's it's hard to believe there was just seven years between the two series because yes. television and special effects did jump a lot in that time. And, and look, I, I think the series of Red Dwarf are probably really oh, yeah. good, really good. You know, you, you as you say, you watch that first series of Red Dwarf and it's brilliantly written, but it looks cheap and the filming looks older compared to it's slightly better in series three. And then by the time you get to season six, it's a whole completely different quality of television. Yeah, or we mentioned House of Cards, the original series of that. That looks dated when you watch that these days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, very, very true. Um, The thing that surprised me most watching it back this time was how scary I actually still found it. Mm -hmm. I knew the plot twists that were coming. I knew the beats that were coming. But even that very first couple of scenes where you first open up and it's dusk, and the sun's just setting and people are sort of standing around mysteriously and then the sun's setting further and people are starting to get a bit nervous and then people start following people and then the sun sets and suddenly they start... And the whole thing is just... Look, I agree, it looks 90s cheap, but it's filmed in a really tense way and and there are many times when the combination of the direction and the music just builds a suspense Mm. that even though I've seen this five, six times over the last 30 years... I've just gone, this is, I'm a little bit creeped out by this. Yeah, like I said, it kind of works in its favour that it does look like this to me, yeah. The next wrap-up question we have is our favourite moment. Now, I'll just say that my favourite episode is Mia Culpa, which is the one we discussed about the priests and the um, school and the mm-hmm. paedophiles. I think that's a really evocative and effective Episode, but my favourite scene is from the next one, episode five. It's a very famous scene, and when we discussed that we were doing this on Twitter, a couple of people also mentioned it. And it is the scene where Idris Elba's character has been knocked out and left in essentially a shed. He's been locked in a shed mm. with three coffins. Like an aircraft hangar. Like an aircraft hangar more, type. More thing. than a garden shed for those. Yeah, more than a garden shed, yeah. Haven't so seen it. If if you haven't seen it, why are you listening to us? <laughs> say that much. Somewhere somewhere between a garden shed and an aircraft hangar, yeah. And and he and he's locked in there with three vampires in modern day type coffins that are timed to open the moment the sun sets. And it's it's one guy against three vampires. He's he's in trouble. And there's a wonderful moment where he comes to and he answers his phone. Jack Davenport's been ringing him. And he says, how far away are you? Jack Davenport goes, we're on our way. We're in a helicopter. 20 minutes. And Idris Elba doesn't say a word, but mm. his whole body just sort of collapses. His face collapses. He, he drops the phone. And, and he doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to swear. And then he just picks the phone up and goes, too late. Yeah. And you know, he knows that you know he's only got five minutes. And then, again, he doesn't say anything, but he just hangs up the phone. He's clearly shattered. And he pauses and he thinks... And then he turns the gun on himself. Mm-hmm. And you can see he's just thinking, I've said they'll never get another drop of blood out of me. Well, there's only one way now to stop that. Yeah. But then he works out how to get out, and it's a really clever thing. And just that whole sequence is, I think, really, really tense, really, really clever, done with acting and with direction. And 
you can see why of all the cast, the one that's now commanding, you know, multi-million dollar salaries and <laughs> people, as you say, have been saying for 10 years he should be James Bond and he's in movies. You can see why Idris Elba is probably the biggest, no, I don't think probably, he's certainly the biggest name to have come out of the series. Yeah. I particularly remember a friend of the show, Mike Solko, said this was the best cliffhanger that's not a cliffhanger. Yes. Because it's not actually the end of the episode. I'll say a few things about that scene before we move on to my favourite bit, Dave. And that's when he was about to shoot himself, I was saying to my wife, you know, why doesn't he think through this? Why does he wait to see what happens? You know, because if Romeo and Juliet, Dave, has taught us anything, it's that you don't off yourself until you have all the facts in front of yourself. Yeah. And I actually thought it through. This is me on my first time around. And I thought, you know what? These, These vampires blow up when you expose them to sunlight. If he can get that coffin near that crack in the door get the coffin open and blow the vampire. You could blow the bloody doors off. So what actually happened, though, where he had to speak, because I wasn't thinking about the the timer coinciding with sundown. So what he actually did was slightly more tricky, which was to speed the timer up so that it opened before sundown. And, of course, he also pumped, I think, his whole magazine of, of bullets into the vampire to sort of slow it before it hit the daylight and then exploded, blowing the doors open. Blah, yes. blah, blah. But I, I had, I was quite proud of myself. I thought through that enough to actually have come up with the solution. And I know writers write that sort of stuff into murder mysteries and things. You've got to write it in so that the audience can work it out. And I don't know whether the, the, the idea from Joe Ahern was that the audience could perhaps work this out and feel, you know, sort of accomplished. But uh, I did. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And we should say carbon bullets, of course, because they're vampires. Yeah. And uh, in, in the first episode, is it, he says, to his to his mate um, Jack, you know, carbon bullets, uh, they're very advanced. And Jack says, "Oh, so are we." <laughs> like <laughs> as vampires in general, we're very advanced. Yeah. Yes. Um, and look, the final thing I'll say about that scene is, again, when I was eighteen, I didn't get the full implications of it. I didn't get the suicide undertones. Oh. But of but of course, you watch it back to that and you go, "Wow, that's that's really quite powerful." Right. Okay. Your favorite scene, Rob. I liked the final episode, Dave, where we have Pierce, who's the churchiest of the churchy. I mean, he's a priest, you know. Yes. And he's the one who's ready to waste vampires on sight. And he probably has the clearest vision of what needs to happen, which turns out to be right when we learn about the vampires' plan, you know, which isn't peace, as Angie is perhaps hoping, you know, it will be. And Pierce has an in-depth talk with a vampire, a, a confessional of sorts, And with the background of his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you think in the moment, is he faltering? Because vampires can be very seductive, which we've mentioned a few times in this chat. And of course he wasn't. He was fine. He's Pierce. I loved all that stuff. I think Philip Quast knocked it out of the park in that confessional. I mean, we don't even see all the confessional. Again, that's something you talk about things happening off screen. We sort of see it kicking off, but we don't see the whole conversation. We see a bit of it, but it's enough just to be really intriguing that Pierce would, you know, send the guards away and go into this room on his own and have this one-on-one with the vampire. I thought that was bloody great. And not even that, when Idris Elba starts to become suspicious and goes and listens to the recording of the conversation... Yes. You can only, of course, hear Pierce's half of the story because you can't record a vampire's voice. That's... Yes, that's a great part of it. Yeah. Yeah. From favourite moment to weakest aspect, Rob... I've already given this away, Dave. I think Jack Davenport's the weak link in the series. The way he plays things so bored and detached, he's too cool for school. And 
you know, that comes up even when he realises that his mate's a vampire. No, scratch that. Even when he realises vampires are real, <laughs> his attitude's more like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, <laughs> he's probably wondering what's for dinner. It just seems so <laughs> unrealistic. Does, does he even want to be in the show at times? And while I admit I warmed to the performance in a general sense, as I simply got used to him, and oh, this is just the way he is, as time went by, looking down on it from 30,000 feet, which maybe I have the, the privilege of, with this being my first time, it still seemed a very strange performance. I'd rather he was a little more dynamic and interesting, especially when we already have the Idris Elba character who's quite stony and stoic and and all of that. You know, I I, I wish Jack Davenport was a little different in this series, or we had a different actor. So it's a semi-snap from me. Oh, okay. As I said earlier, I do like Jack Davenport's performance. I think that he, he hits what he's going for. But... Even though this is a small, truncated six-episode season, Jack can't reach the end of his moral decision until episode six. And by episode four, you are kind of like, dude, either commit or piss off. Yeah. And and I think that that's, look, that's the nature of television. You you have to have that final decision. Does he commit or does he yeah. give, give, give it up in episode six? Or get off the pot. Yes. That's essentially what I was trying to say. Um, <laughs> And I think that, you know, it, although it's only six episodes, it is six hours, and, and it doesn't quite sustain that for six hours. No, no, I don't think so. I will keep going with my favourite character as mm-hmm. the final of our questions. Um, an easy one for me, it's Philip Quaster's Pierce. Excellent. Uh, very, very well performed, and just the the way that he's given some of those dry lines, the way that he's... the way that he has to recon- reconcile his faith against the existence of vampires is just really, really creepy and interesting. And, and and it is an aspect of the show that even after you turn it off, you find yourself sort of going back to the points you made and going, did he have a point? Is that right? Let, 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 and, and you want to explore those sort of thoughts. So um, a great performance and a great character for me. What about you, Rob? I'll answer this in a slightly tricky way, Dave. I think if the series got another season my favourite character may have become Idris Elba's Vaughn Rice. He's that bit haunted. He's a bit into Angie. He's the action man. He's got great one-liners. But I think he's only just coming into his own at the end of the first season where we see a little bit under the surface and we get to see more of the real guy, not the robotic performance that, that I mentioned earlier. So I'm probably a snap with you that if it's just based on this season, it would be Pierce... But with a second season, I think it would have become Vaughn. I can understand that. Mm, yeah, I think he had a lot more to sort of give. Fair enough. Well, we're coming up to an hour, Robin. We said we wouldn't go over an hour. Mm-hmm. So it is time for closing thoughts. I will simply repeat what I've said all along. I think it's a great cast. I think it's a really clever premise. It's well-directed. Is some of it a little bit dated? Yes, but hey, we're Doctor Who fans. We watch stuff from the 60s. So, <laughs> yep. you know, you, you, you can't complain about that. It's a definite recommendation from me. I think if you're interested in vampires, particularly how they were portrayed back in the 90s, and just generally what science fiction was doing at this time when, you know, science fiction was only just starting to come back, 
it's been really, really unfashionable, really, from the late 80s through to the mid-90s, and, and it was now just starting to come back. Mm. I think it is worth a shout. But, look, I came into this as a fan, as I've said. Rob, you came into it as a novice. Mm. What did you think, and should our listeners go out and watch it? Yeah, Dave, after a ropey first ep and an all-right second ep, I think the series is really interesting and moving in the right direction for the final four eps. And the way it ends is fine, even if it's not continuing. We're we're left to wonder what might happen. What will the team get up to? We sort of come full circle from Jack being killed in the first episode to Jack being resurrected. And then he's like, you know, see you around. This might seem weird, but it, it almost feels like this was his story all along. His was the underpinning story, because it certainly moved Michael's story along. And when you watch it as a single season, he bookends it from start to finish. And, and surely he would have become a big deal in the second series. It would have been Michael running around after Jack, you know, or something like that. I, I think I've read somewhere that Joe Hearn has said, now I don't know whether he, he planned it that way or, or he said sort of afterwards, if he'd done a second series, he would have had... Jack is a much bigger character. For sure. And look, all up, it feels like maybe three seasons might have been enough for this concept. Certainly, there was some big stuff brewing. I don't think another six eps would have done it justice. Another 12 eps feels about right. But any more than that, I'm not sure the concept would have continued as strongly or kept up the interest. So I think it did have a limited life. Six episodes, though, is just a bit too limited for me. It is a strong recommend from me, especially once you can get past the first episode in particular. It's all pretty good from there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the second episode is probably the weakest, but after that, I think it's just hit after hit. Yeah, good stuff. Fantastic. So, look, that was our alternate galaxies on Ultraviolet. Please, as always, let us know your thoughts. We will be back in a week's time with our flagship show for April, where we are talking about the Doctor Who missing adventure, The Shadow of Wang Chiang. Mm. Our plan after that is to do an alternate galaxies on Picard season three. And if we've still got the energy after that, we'll do the Mandalorian season three. So plenty coming down the pipeline from us. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to all those. As am I. But until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Alternate Galaxies, the podcast where Rob and Dave from the Doctor Who show take a look at other great sci-fi and fantasy that we think Doctor Who fans might like. You can reach us at hello at the dwshow.net, on Twitter at the dwshow, or on Facebook forward slash the dwshow. Alternate Galaxies is an irregular podcast, so stay tuned to the Doctor Who show and other programs on our feed to know when the next episode's coming. Our theme music is called Wretched Destroyer and is by Kevin McLeod. Find him at incompetech.com. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.